Hey y'all, and welcome to Ain't No Such Thing, where we tell original Southern horror stories. My name is Amanda, and I've got a good one for you tonight. The Possum Princess The boy's name is Theodore. He's a spirited seven-year-old who loves to laugh and giggle, but hates his car seat. He's always protesting that he's too big for such things now as he kicks the back of the driver's seat. His mom checks the rearview mirror, tilting it to take good measure of her son. He's rolling his head around like a madman and his laughter turns to whines. It'll be three hours before they can make their final destination in Miami, but Theodore isn't going to make it that long. His boundless energy can't be contained. Mary pulls her small car over to the side of the road. Theodore lets out a triumphant whoop. Muscle memory guides Mary as she releases the boy from his harness. He leaps out of the car, chasing the first bird that he sees. He's so jubilant that Mary loses herself in the moment. She doesn't remember the warnings of her own childhood until Theodore's screams pummel her ears and his face is glossy with tears. He's on the ground, clutching his ankle, and the telltale of a snake's warning is still too near. Mary scoops her son into her arms. The two red dots on the side of his foot swell. Theodore's eyes roll back. He mumbles between sobs. Mary props him up in the car next to her as she revs the engine. His heart needs to stay above the wound. The venom needs to fight gravity and circulation. He has a chance, if she gets him to a hospital. She's driving, running through the roads and towns in her mind, all so far, all so small. This area hadn't had a single boom since the first asphalt was laid to the ground. Mary knew. She grew up in one of these small towns. Memories flood back. Warnings of snake bites and alligators. Don't walk along the edge of the water, especially not at dusk or dawn. Don't make your own trail through the underbrush. In the winter, watch for crevices and cracks in the rocks. It's where they hide. This is their country. It's winter now and as cold as it gets in the area. They've had a few overnights that drop below freezing. That's when the snakes go to their dens. That's when they gather in clusters of wriggling muscle slipping around each other like silk. When the sun is high, they emerge in mass, feeding and soaking in the heat, and biting little boys who don't know to stay away. Theodore cries out, and Mary turns the wheel hard, catching dirt and gravel on a road headed to the west. She's never been along this path before, but she knows it. All the children in her hometown knew the stories of Den Rock, where the snakes would gather. They saw the traveling shows of the people of Den Rock. They watched them clip cotton mouths to their earlobes like earrings and belly dance to the tat-tat-tat-tat-tat of the angry rattlers around their necks. They are a people immune to snake bites, and they are Theodore's only hope. 2. It's Sally who comes up to greet Mary at the large metal gate that crosses the only road into Den Rock. Sally with her straw-gray hair and dark blue eyes. Sally, who'd been named a possum princess 55 years ago. She's a dirty old woman now with dirty clothes and dirty nails. Her skin is puckered and pruned. The deep sun-baked chasms at the edge of her lips give her a permanent scowl. At the sight of the woman and the boy, the scowl deepens. Sally's nostrils flare as her eyes move from the car to the mother and her son. It's been a long time since any strangers have come out her way. She didn't miss them, and the foolishness that inevitably brought them to her. Her glower softens as she takes in the boy in Mary's arms. Children aren't to blame for their ignorance, nor the foolishness of their parents. 
the boy is brown-haired and freckled, soft and plump with smooth skin untouched by hard labor. He's a coddled child, that Sally knows, but death wasn't a fair sentence for the young. Sally tips her head slightly and unlocks the padlock holding the gate closed. She sucks on dry lips as Mary carries Theodore near. His otherwise perfect flesh rises in a single rippling bulge at his ankle. The bloody snake bite wounds have already coagulated, giving them the appearance of red freckles on swollen skin. So, Sally says through a saliva-filled mouth, How long has it been? She pronounces her S with a as the folks of Den Rock do. They slurp to speak. Five or ten minutes, Mary replies. Theodore isn't yet unconscious in her arms, but moans suggest that he'll be there soon. Sally spits. Not in anger, but she's not used to much conversation. There's too much saliva to contain. Which? Five or ten? Mary wants to scream. She'd rather be in a hospital. She'd rather be just about any place but here with these people in their old ways. She has no choice. Seven, eight now. She adjusts. They walk into the Pinewood Flats along an ill-used but well-manicured trail. Sally slaps the back of her leathered hand against the branches as they walk. Snakes rattle and slither, moving away from the path. Good, Sally replies. Put the boy over there. She motions with two bent fingers toward a large gray stone among a natural pile of broken rock. Crevices and holes decorate the landscape. Mary freezes, but Sally pushes her along. If you want the boy to live, ain't no time for hesitation. You do, or he dies. Mary sets the boy on the stone. She tries to ignore the deep tat-tat-tat from rattlers under the rocks. Sally drops to a knee and examines the boy's ankle. His foot is no longer a thing distinct from his leg. Bugs move through the brush as they always do, but Mary can see that there are places they won't go, an invisible line they won't cross. Sally sniffs the child, presses her sharply angled nose to the snake bite. She follows it up, up, up his body, sliding her nose along the paths of veins that lead back to his heart. Mary doesn't know how, but Sally can smell the snake venom traveling through her son's body. A cockroach moves toward the rocks. It pauses and turns abruptly. Sally snatches it with a speed that belies her age. Without comment, she balls it in the palm of her hand and turns to Mary. Can you help him? Mary asks, her voice wavering under the old woman's gaze. She has many questions, but none are as important. Sally takes good measure of the mother standing before her. The woman is in her mid-thirties, and by outward appearance is healthy. The boy is small, but heavy-set. An arm should be enough. The old woman slips the cockroach into her pocket and tilts her head. It had been months since anyone had woken the old girl, but she was due for a treat. For your boy to live, you gotta lose some, mama, Sally states, her words as clear as her accent allows. Mary's first instinct is to cry that she'll pay anything to save her son, but Sally's stark gaze tells her that isn't the nature of this exchange. She thinks of her car, and her house, and the trivial things owned that bring value only in comfort. This isn't a negotiation. This is Theodore's life. Anything, Mary croaks. A strong hand grabs her shoulder. 
She squeals, startled, and a man no more than ten years her senior tightens his grip on her arm. Mary hadn't heard his approach, but Sally is nonplussed by his arrival. He holds a tool in his other hand. It reminds Sally of a machete. It isn't one, of course. It is a tool of his own crafting. The blade is long and square with a wooden handle. It's clean and freshly sharpened. The man presses Mary down on the rock, cheek to warm stone. He turns her head so that she faces Theodore. She cannot forget why she is here. If she runs, they will not give chase, and her son will die. A new voice, a woman, confirms that she's ready. The new woman offers a small apology, telling Mary that anesthesia would only make the brew inert. The limb needs to be healthy and freshly dead. Mary does not hear the whoosh as the man swings the blade toward her shoulder. She does feel the pain. Blackness takes her. 3. Deeper into the Pinewood Flats lives the creature that the folk of Den Rock have long called the Possum Princess. She's not a spirit or a god, but a being of flesh and blood. She's not ageless, though she's lived hundreds of years. Stories tell of the days when she roamed the woods. However, no man or woman in Den Rock has seen her move more than 50 feet in their lifetimes. She's an aged beast, swollen on the comforts of the society built around her. She's a possum, shaped like her kin, with ratty and gray-white fur and a naked tail. She lies on her side, her stomach a bulbous protrusion distended from her body. She is large in both length and girth. Lying as she does, her shoulders sit higher than Sally's head. Were she to stand, she'd be three times as tall. Her black eyes stare blankly as Sally approaches. Her mouth hangs open, husky breath lisping over hundreds of tiny teeth. Her long tongue flops onto the ground. A decaying ring of flowers adorns her head, a gift from some of the town's children. At her hip, she wears an equally decayed pink tulle tutu. It is a remnant from the annual Possum Princess Festival. She will be gifted with another skirt in two months. Sally holds out her hand, pinching a cockroach between two fingers. There you go, old girl, she whispers affectionately. At her side, Malcolm smiles. He is covered in Mary's blood. Her arm is tucked under his. Good girl. He soothes the creature. The possum princess lifts her head and reaches out with paw toward the two. Sally slips the cockroach into her fingers. The beast grips it as though she were human, between forefinger and thumb, and slides it toward her mouth. Her tongue takes it first, wrapping the bug in an embrace before it disappears between her thin lips. She grunts, foaming white falling from her mouth, and rolls onto her back. At her belly, a reddish pocket of fur is visible. The red stretches on, appearing to grow, as the possum princess opens pouch at her belly. Sally nods, and Malcolm steps forward. Carefully, he slips Mary's arm into the open pouch. There is a gurgling inside, a bubbling of a belly, and the pungent scent of acidic afterbirth. Sally pushes her hand onto the possum princess's belly. She feels the arm within the pouch grow thin. It is eaten by the blend of magic and science that gives the opossum immunity to a snake's venom. Sally has tended to the creature many times before, though most often for her own people. 
the antivenin is best when born of a person with the stricken's bloodline. Closer the better. Size and weight matter, as does the time lapse since the bite. Sally measures all these details in a glance. She is the possum princess's keeper. The arm ceases to hold the shape of an arm. It feels like mashed potatoes, the dirty kind, under a layer of thinly furred flesh. This time, Sally declares. Fetch the boy. Malcolm obliges. 4. Theodore's right leg is a link of sausage. The knee has disappeared along with the ankle. His flesh is blotchy purple-black. It creeps up the boy's abdomen toward his chest. When it reaches his heart, there will be nothing left of Theodore for the possum princess's antivenin to save. He's running out of time. The child is incoherent in Malcolm's arms. He murmurs words that could be cries for his mother. He is splattered with a thin spray of her blood. His breathing is shallow. Death draws near. Sally takes the possum princess's paw in one hand and squeezes. The human grip, like a handshake, never ceases to amaze her. With her other hand, Sally runs her fingers over the beast's muzzle, caressing and calming her. The process, insofar as Sally can tell, is painless but agitating. It's an itch that can't be scratched. Malcolm awkwardly slides the boy's feet into the pouch. The fur inside is now damp and gooey with an earthen smell. A sharp, metallic taste toys with Malcolm's senses. He knows, however, that it is part of the process. He slides the boy deeper into the sticky wet until Theodore disappears fully into the pouch. If the child were dead, flesh and bone would dissolve into the embryotic brew, birthing an antivenin. His heart beats, weakly, but it beats. Theodore breathes in. Pink liquid fills his lungs. The stuff of the possum princess and the limb that was once his mother's becomes a part of Theodore. The possum princess shudders. Wide black pupils search Sally's face. They cannot communicate in the way of men or animals, but they share an understanding. The creature is afraid. Sally is there to provide comfort. Oily ochre first dribbles from the pouch, then it oozes. The possum princess's abdomen tenses. The pouch appears smaller, then widens again. Malcolm steps back, putting distance between himself and the creature. The pouch contracts once again, fully this time, before flexing and widening in hard contraction. Theodore spills out onto the ground below. He is pink and fresh, with knees and ankles. He coughs, choking the embryotic antivenin from his lungs. Theodore is alive and well. Mary is alive. You've been listening to Ain't No Such Thing, The Possum Princess, written by Erica Heflin, narrated and produced by Amanda Rachels. If you enjoyed this story and you want to hear more of Ain't No Such Thing, well then you need to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We can also be found on Patreon and on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Ain't No Such Thing. We'd love to hear from you there. Maybe you can tell us about what scares you out in the woods because a possum as big as this one is surely what scares me. I've always been a little scared of them. (laughs) But this story is told in loving memory of Petunia Possum. I hope you all are doing well and safely enjoying the holiday season so far. You take care. And I'm going to be back with another one for you real soon.